Hello, I'm Persia, and this is Eleven Again. Eleven Again is a show about what we were obsessed with as kids. The things that we could not stop reading or watching or listening to or thinking about. Every week I have someone to talk about what they really liked as a kid. We try to make sure that if you guys aren't familiar with the thing as much as we are, that the show still totally makes sense, but of course, it's fun to read or watch along. This show obviously means a lot to me. I host it, I produce it solo, and most of the guests are family and friends. And today, that guest is my dad. Before we get started though, I wanted to say a couple of things. First of all, of course, as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for sharing, for talking about it, for enjoying it. It really means a lot to me to share this with you guys in a weird time that we're all having where it's really hard to connect with people. And second, I have some exciting news. Eleven Again is actually joining a podcast network called The Worst Garbage Online. The Worst Garbage Online has had a couple of shows over the years, such as No Script at All and Into the Aether. And if you want to listen to those shows, you can go to theworstgarbage.online and the links are there. I have personal connections to the network and I've been on the Discord for a couple of months and have met a lot of the amazing people there and they've been listening to this show and it just felt like a really natural fit. So I'm super excited to be working even more closely with shows like Into the Aether and continuing to share my show with their fans. This show now has its own website, which will be 11, the number, 11, again, dot online, where you can find the social media, but the Twitter is just at 11 again podcast if you want to follow it on there. So today, like I said, I'm talking to my dad. He was not exactly a natural fit for the prompt because as he always told me when I was growing up, he never rereads books and he never understood why I reread books so many times. And he grew up before the age of DVDs and VHSs and Netflix and all that. But what he had, of course, was a record player. And so, of course, what we're going to talk about today is Greetings from Asbury Park, Bruce Springsteen's first album. Do you remember when the album came out? Uh, When I was 13, I started hearing Bruce Springsteen on local radio, largely on WMMR, which was the rock station, progressive rock station that we all listened to with active DJs who played their favorites and would discuss them. And I started to hear uh, Rosalita, which was from Bruce's second album, uh, The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle. The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle? Let me check. (laughs) And and in those days, songs didn't have to be limited to three minutes. That was like a five or six minute song, which I really, really liked. And through listening to hearing Rosalita, um, I went back and purchased Greetings from Asbury Park because I liked uh, his second album so much. I went back and purchased his first album. Oh, so you didn't know about him until his second album. I didn't know about But the first album and the second album came out like right on top of each other. Yeah, do you remember what year? Well, I was uh, 13, so that when I first started listening to Bruce on the radio, that was 1974. I always think of Bruce Springsteen as sort of a regional phenomenon. Yeah. Did you have that feeling like... Yeah, I thought... I, they described him as from being from Jersey, so it was very much... Uh, I guess I didn't realize then it was North Jersey. I thought of him as I thought he was Asbury Park. I guess I thought it was somehow in South Jersey, and uh, he seemed to be playing around 
Philadelphia quite a bit, like really near where I went to high school, which was the main point. There was a club that places that like uh, folk singers had appeared at and uh, like the Jackson Browns of the world had appeared at. And uh, I don't know whether I was not young enough to remember, but whether Dylan had appeared there, the main point he had performed there. And then I think 74, 75, he started appearing at the um, regional place in Upper Darby, uh, the Tower. And I even knew uh, some friends who had gone to see him at the Tower. So I thought of him as a regional band. And where where were you living at the time? I was living at, when I was 13. We just moved to Villanova. Which is like, how Which would you is describe a, it? It's a suburb of Philadelphia. People think of it as a college town because it's got a famous college there it's with a, as a basketball power, but it's really just a suburb of Philadelphia. It's not really a, it's not really a college town. Yeah. And what did you guys... Oh, the dog's back. <laughs> okay, that was quick. You have to be quiet. What? Sit. Sit. Thank you. And I feel like I discovered Springsteen on my own through the um, from the radio, as opposed to a lot of the music I'd been. I discovered previously, I discovered through my older brother, so I knew things like I was listening to Bowie and Led Zeppelin, which was all my brother's, um, you know, hand-me-down taste from my brother. Yeah, I feel like 13 is definitely when you start being your own person in terms of (laughs) taste, or you're, like, trying to be your own person. Right. And did you guys have, like, one record player in the house that everyone shared, or how did that work out? I think we had... Three. I think there was one like in the main living room, which could sort of be my parents or my dad's study, which I think almost never got used. And then my brother had one and I had one. We, my brother and I each had our own separate record players. That's nice. Yeah. Do you well, record players were not particularly expensive. Oh, really? They, yeah. The, I mean, my brother had one fancy one where you could change the uh, stylus and, you know, and I just had a sort of simple record player that just played records over and over again. That was not, you know, you just go to Radio Shack and get a record player. It wasn't really like a uh, oh, okay. a system. Well, I don't know. I remember, you know, we got our iPods for like bar mitzvah presents. That was like a big deal. No, no, no. Record players were really accessible. But they came in all, I mean, you could have a 20 or $30 record player or you could spend hundreds of dollars on your on your system. Which, you know, you could have a record player with distinct amp and preamp and speakers where you just have a simple all-in-one type of thing. Yeah. And what do you remember about how you felt when you heard Rosalita on the radio? First of all, I liked that it was long and it was definitely not pop. I like that it told a story and it's got that great pause in the middle. And then so you feel like, you know, you know that a pause is coming and you know what's coming after the pause and you can sort of count it in your head. It makes you make you feel like you're an insider. It seemed really different to me because he was telling his story about, you know, he has the line, uh, I just got a record contract. It just seemed really, really real. Like really present, present yeah, time. Yeah, really present time. He just is a guy who's breaking into prominence and he's talking about having not you know nothing in the swamps of jersey was a great like sort of local reference and then 
you know, when he says, I just got a record contract and now we can go off together. It just seemed so, it seemed so honest and real. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're right. That happened like a month ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It seemed so, uh, that, that the songwriter singer was just being really, uh, telling his life story. And that could be any sort of young person trying to, you know, it represented anybody who was sort of just trying to make it. And it, that seemed really, uh, resonated with me, this idea of, of, your first commercial success yeah, and the freedom it might, it would bring, you know, you wouldn't be financially dependent on your parents anymore. The idea that you're financially independent of the thrill of being financially independent. <laughs> it really resonated with me. Yeah. You really can't wait for that to be me. Yeah. And do you remember like getting the record and bringing it home and sort of sitting in your room and playing it? I re- I don't remember that instance of buying the record. I did go out at some point and buy the record and I don't remember all the songs in the record. I remember that I liked one side a lot better than the other side and that I thought a couple of the songs were dreary, <laughs> which really uh, I was disappointed about. But uh, that's one of the things I liked about when I then went and purchased uh, Greetings from Asbury Park, which is that it was much more upbeat. The songs were shorter and it was more commercial in that respect. And, uh, you know, I, I think I lo- liked a much higher percentage of all the songs on the album rather than uh, the second album. But so you liked the general song list from the first album better than the second? I, li- I liked the general, yeah, the, the general song list. But, you know, I didn't like any song as much as I liked Rosalita. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That I, was always top. That was always top. But if I was going to listen to an album and uh, let the record player just keep sort of starting, you could put the record player on repeat. So you could put the arm down and just repeat. I would, I would much more uh, inclined to do uh, Greetings from Asbury Park. You and Bruce, I guess, are not that different in age. He's like a, a little bit older than you. He's, he's in his 70s and I'm still 50, in my late 50s. Uh-huh. So he's uh, 11, 12 years older. But at that time, I guess I, you know, he would have been, I was in my mid-teens and he was in his 20s. So I didn't think of, you know, as the same generation, but I didn't think of him as being dist, you know. Yeah. I just think of, in some ways, because of that, or like because you were there at the beginning, it's been sort of like a lifelong relationship. <laughs> I, I, I agree with that. I, I'll tell you what, when Born to Run came out in, uh, you can look at it, 75 or 76, and all of a sudden uh, he's on the cover of both Newsweek and Time in the same week, and, he, and he's this national figure. I had mixed emotions about it. On the one hand, I really li- I liked the album. On the other hand, I felt like, oh, everybody's getting in into our little regional secret and he's becoming this national figure and seems something lost about our relationship with Bruce and now he's, you know, an international star. Yeah, you lost that special, special yeah, the, team. that special little regional connection that we had. I mean, on the one hand, I was, you know, I liked the I liked Born to Run and uh, I didn't, you know, obviously wanted him to be commercially successful, but there seemed to be a, something lost. Something lost, yeah. And do you remember also at that time, like you're 13, what else you were into? You mean outside of music? Yeah. I read a lot. I hadn't started wrestling yet. So I did sort of general sporty stuff, but not as parts of teams. Um, I think I read and listened to music and. Uh, after school, we'd come home and we'd watch reruns on uh, the UHF channels. And of what? 
Gilligan's Island and uh, Speed Racer. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Beverly Hillbillies, Bewitched. And then I can remember Sunday with my family, we'd watch Sunday night television and we'd see All in the Family. And I, if I got, if I was allowed to stay up, I could watch Cher, the Sunny and Cher <laughs> show. Well, we just called it Cher and see what outfits she was wearing every week. Yeah. She would wear these Mackie gowns and that was uh, exciting. And there was the Flip Wilson show. Yeah. Was there anything that you like particularly, was your favorite TV show at the time? All in the Family. All in the Family. And, and you know, it was my favorite show, but it was the number one show in America. And like, I don't know the numbers, but 60% of Americans were watching it on Sunday night. It was a huge uh, cultural phenomenon that you just don't have anymore because there's so many more viewing options. And back then we had three channels, essentially. Um, but TV just wasn't on demand. TV wasn't on demand. So you had a, yeah, you had, it, you scheduled your life around TV. Yeah. I, I think in general, compared perhaps to... I mean, we definitely watched Sunday night television. I think we might have been a little bit uh, less a TV-centric household than most. And uh, reading uh, was a big deal. But I can't remember exactly. I know I read a lot of sports biographies. Really? Yeah. When you were a kid? <laughs> yeah, when I was a kid. Uh, read books about Babe Ruth and Joe DiMaggio and Lou Gehrig and... Uh, Will Chamberlain and all these sports uh, teams. I also read a lot, but it might have been a little bit when I was older. I went through this phase where I read a lot about like uh, uh, English history, like stories about the Tudors and the uh, Middle Age kingdoms of uh, England. Hmm. You weren't into science fiction or fantasy yet? No, later on, I was never really into science fiction as a genre, but later on, more of when I was in high school, not junior high, I read Dune, and I was really into that. And I think also when I was in high school, I read Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. When do you think is the last time you sat down and listened to any album, like front to back? Oh, gosh, I don't really think I do that anymore at all. The last... I can't recall the last time I sat and listened to an album. I, you know, now when I want to hear an artist, I put that artist's name on Spotify. Uh, actually, that's not true. So the only album that I do want use Spotify or uh, whatever the other music uh, sources are, I'll listen to Joni Mitchell, which was an album I had in my youth. And I'll, I'll listen to... Uh, that whole album from front to back. And I really like, uh, trying to blank on the name of the album. I just looked it up, but there are so many. Um, Blue, Clouds, Court and Spark. Court and Spark. Uh, so I, I will listen to Court and Spark on Spotify from start to finish. I'll also listen to uh, Kate Bush's Greatest Hits. from, <laughs> uh, But I, I put that on sometimes because I know... Uh, mother's coming home and she really enjoys that it's something that we both really like okay great i think it's time to listen to the album okay i'm excited <laughs> you have to take notes and then we'll come back and talk about copious notes as many notes as the spirit moves you to take a spirit in the dark <laughs> spirit in the night yeah <laughs> whatever it is <laughs> you gonna do some live live mixing yeah, yeah. What is that intro? Is that the guitar? That's a guitar. Yeah, I guess. It's fun to do a, a one-day episode. 
Is it? It's like a, what do they call it when you're a TV show all happens in like a very small space, it's like a cl- closed room episode? I don't know. It's like the Eric Andre show? It's like the, it's exactly <laughs> like the Eric Andre show to do an episode in one day. Mm-hmm. So how did you like it? I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. I, you know, I always feel like, oh, you know, your memories built things up to greater than it was. But I really, really enjoyed it. I uh, didn't want it to stop. But it was about 40, 40 you, minutes, 37 the, minutes, I think. Yeah, it's short. It's really short. And a lot of the songs are short. So it goes by really quickly. And uh, I wish, uh, yeah, I wished it was longer. Yeah. It's just his, uh, his music is all about storytelling. Yes. And so in that way, it's like even if the songs are long, they don't feel that long because they're not repetitive. It's no, a story. No, no, no. Though he must run, run out of words. It's really, to me, like poetry. It's just full of rhyming and alliteration. It's fast. It's really fast. And I definitely remembered that growing up, it was like you felt, again, like your insider club if you all knew all the lyrics to a Bruce song and you could spit them out. And for people who, either my parents or even... Uh, Janus, as a English as a second language, it's really tough. The 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 way he sings, the volume of the words that, that they don't really repeat, it changes. It just it's very hard. It's hard. I, it seems hard. <laughs> but when I listen to it, his ability in just a couple phrases to create an image is so powerful. It's it's really cool and and powerful to me just with a few and the nicknames he applies to people in the street just and he's so he sets the scene up so quickly and then he moves out he moves on to the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one it's just really it just really puts a big smile on my face it feels almost like a dream sequence where things are just shifting kind of like scene to scene to scene to scene um and you get a narrative out of that but it's very it's fractured it's fractured it's fractured yeah and and the, the sort of coherence is in the totality. Do you know what I mean? It's like you mush them all together and you're, it's like, oh, it's street life or it's um, the people on a bus and it's, all the, it's, it's a jangle of emotions and feelings and, and, and you just put all these pieces together and get a sort of, not necessarily a coherent narrative, but a sense of the whole. Yeah, like you have to stand back. Yeah. That's great. I'm glad you liked it. It's only nine songs. It's yeah. so short. <laughs> I wonder, I didn't look up the second album. I... I mean, you said it was double-sided. Yeah, both of them were, all the albums were double-sided. Even if you can't fit nine songs on one side of a album. <laughs> a vinyl engineer. But. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, you have four songs on one side, five on the other. It's just not that many songs. Um, did you feel, I want to get like your, your favorite song and your maybe least favorite song. But I also want to know if you think that changed, like since you were a kid. Ah, jeez, I really, it's... It, my, uh, I really like a lot of the songs, so it's hard for me to... I know my least favorite song, okay. so I always disliked Mary, Queen of Arkansas. I still uh, dislike Mary, Queen of Arkansas. I feel like that if I had the motivation, even though it was a record, that sometimes I would get up when it would start playing and, and bl- skip it. And skip it. I, it feels like a funeral dirge to me. It's and, super different from all the rest of the songs, too. Yeah, it's just Bruce himself. On a guitar, there's no, there's no east. You don't hear any Clarence. You don't really hear. I don't know if you hear any piano or not. It does brute, and it seems to be emphasizing his voice, which is his weak point. <laughs> so like, I, I, it's a different pacing. I, I don't, 
It seems like they were just trying it. They were like, let's do something a little bit more folksy. Let's just slip it in there, see if it works. Yeah, I don't know. He's singing about Arkansas. Everything else well, right. is, New York, is New York City. And all of a sudden he's singing about Arkansas. That was the weirdest part to me. Is like like you said, like he's such a a regional Yeah, he's a Jersey artist. New York uh, guy and all of a sudden he's singing. He's Queen singing of- about Arkansas? Why? Yeah. Uh, let's not too much time on our, our mutual, our shared dislike of, of that song. It's just confusing. Yeah. But I did think it was interesting. There is so much New York. There's a lot of Harlem. Yeah. And I, I guess, I don't, uh, did he move and like live there and work there for a while? I think early in his career, af- after his sort of summers in Asbury Park, he started, like he started coming to Philly, he started getting gigs in New York and then I believe when he was recording the album and writing some of it, once he got his contract, he was living in and recording the album in New York. Yeah, because he's even he's talking about like I mean, there's a lot about like the Hispanic community there. Yeah, essentially. There a, yeah, at some point he dated an Hispanic girl, which is also why he wrote why Rosalina. 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 So at some point he had an Hispanic girlfriend. Yeah. He also. Um, I noticed, which I think I realized at the time, he mentions Jesus and Mary, and there's some fair amount of religious. He was a good Catholic boy. There's a lot of Christian imagery. Yeah, there's a lot of Christian imagery, which um, as a Jewish kid, you know, around bar mitzvah age, it wasn't, uh, in a weird way, I related to it because I was going through my bar mitzvah. So I I under, I feel like I related to a sort of stru- structured religiosity. I didn't find it off-putting. Uh, it it resonated with me because I was finishing up at Hebrew school and, and getting ready for my bar mitzvah during this period of time. That's interesting. I was thinking about that, especially because I have, especially Lost in the Flood, Yeah, I have really strong memories of listening to Lost in the Flood as a kid and like just talking about like the Vatican and like nuns Vatican's and all like immaculate conception. Yeah. See, I really, I, that's one, of, you asked me to take notes. That's one of the, that's what I wrote down for that so I always loved that image it's like it's great that he's talking about Vanicol so it's like religious but then he's, he's talking uh, you know sacrilege which is pregnant nuns, nuns you know, yeah. screaming I just I found that lyric thrilling when I was it's a kid it's really it's, striking it's really striking I still love it uh, I really liked I think probably the song that I remembered both and probably made the biggest impact to me at the time was growing up. Yeah. Because I felt that really, even though I was young, you know, I wasn't like 17 or 18 or 19 and I never was or saw myself as a rebel, this idea of of wanting to stand out from the crowd really resonated with me. He says, you know, everyone uh, said, they said, sit down, I stood up. Everyone they said, sit down, I stood up. idea of wanting to be seen and noticed and differentiate yourself from a crowd really that uh that's at that time at that age it really really resonated with me and I feel like you asked about age difference earlier I felt like he was writing about high school years and and, which I wasn't quite in yet I was about to go into but I knew the feeling whereas you know Rolling Stone and Led's the other people at the time were writing about post-college stuff that I didn't comprehend. Yeah, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, and so that, but the idea of wanting to not be a conformist and grow up and having a jukebox mistress for first mate, <laughs> uh, that 
and yeah, that just really resonated with me. I think throughout middle school and high school. How do you re- relate to these things that, uh, you know, at this point are 50 years old? <laughs> I don't know. Because for me, I'm thinking a lot about like, a lot of it feels very abstract to me, whereas right. to you, it, it does seem like it feels more tactile. Right. And I'm just sort of thinking of him in like this larger context of like working class hero, Americana, like sort of a singular storytelling artist who is so much representative of how he grew up and where he lived and his life experience. Um, so I don't know if I find it relatable as much as I find it to be like an artifact. Okay. And uh, how about, you know, the, the way he uses lyrics? Because it seems very singular to me. I, I Yeah. Funnily enough, there I'm not a huge Taylor Swift fan. Right. The most recent Taylor Swift album, which I believe was called Folklore, yeah. I'm sure you haven't listened I to like any of yeah, it. But a lot of people were really excited for her to get into this sort of storytelling. It's not nearly as uh, high energy or or you know he's very like I don't know exactly what the word is bluesy. Do you think so? No, I, I don't think so. Is it, it just rock? It's, it's sort of coming out of a Bob Dylan folk rock. Background. Is it a folk it, rock? Because blinded, very... something about the like horns and blinded by the light. So yeah, blinded by the light, I think is different because I, I, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not a musician. Blinded by the light's got a lot of Clarence. Yeah. And so I think some of the other songs, I, I, I don't, I don't know the history here. It almost seems like somewhere in the album, Clarence joins either some of the songs or group joins the E Street Band full time because... Uh, at the end, the ending songs have a lot more sax yeah. than the earlier songs did. And I don't know if that's coincidence or that's... Uh, Just like development. Yeah, development. Could you explain real quick who Clarence is? Clarence Clemens was a very, very large uh, saxophone player who happened to be African-American, which I probably didn't realize quite at that time, but later became you know, sort of the symbol of the band, which is that they were mixed racially, which was very unusual. And also, she was an ex-football player, which was physically really, really big. And then as they became a great and famous touring band, Bruce and Clarence had a special relationship both on and off stage. And on stage, it was just, uh, there was a lot of interplay between Bruce and Clarence, and they were close, uh, you know, sort of spiritually. And uh, it was great to see them interact on stage. So Clarence, for years, was a really, really critical part of the band. And his saxophone playing was great. And then, unfortunately, uh, Clarence passed away. Not that to, long not ago. The, I don't know, three or four years ago at this point. And is replaced in the band... By with, his son. By uh, Jake, who's his, his son. I think so. Son or nephew? Hmm, I thought it was his son, but I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're right. Because it says his dad is Bill Clemens. There's a lot of Clemenses around. Yeah. Yeah, he's a nephew. Um, but yeah, uh, so the lyrics to me in a weird way, I don't find that there is a lot of this sort of storytelling anymore, except for in rap. Well, I was thinking about the rap. I don't, and I guess folklore by Taylor Swift, <laughs> but, <laughs> but mostly rap. I was trying at the end of the song, I, I, at the end of the album, I had the same thought, which is, I wonder if the closest thing to this is rap. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know any of the songs particularly well enough to make the comparison. 
I just don't think they have, you know, the, the word play and the image play. You know, the rap is often a lot more about the beat. Yeah, but I do think, I mean, it's changed, obviously. But it, you remember when we were growing up, like, listening to Kanye's albums all the time? A lot of his stuff is about, like, multiple rhymes and a single, like, stanza right. or a lot of double entendre, a lot of imagery. I, I mean, it depends on the rapper. But um, there are definitely artists who are very much concentrated on that. I was also wondering, just because I feel like over the years since this album came out, you've sort of learned about Bruce as like a person. Like, you know a lot more about him and like his relationship with his father and just like intention behind his music. And and you've read like his biography. And I've seen his Broadway show on TV. And you've seen his Broadway (laughs) show on TV. And you've seen him live. And so I was just wondering, like, because we've talked about before sort of this false narrative of him being sort of like an all-American, like, pro or pro-American hero, and why that's sort of a, a shallow understanding of his music. So I guess the way I think of it is I experienced Bruce and these first two albums before he became a national sort of mythic figure. So I the first two albums have a very personal and like smaller B Bruce yeah. uh, relationship with. And then you have Born to Run and he, he becomes a world figure and a symbol of American working class and American rock and roll and... Uh, anti-war and maybe anti, you know, standing up for the little man. I don't think about those things so much for the first two albums. I think of him more as a regional creator who I had a person, whose music resonated with me personally, not because, you know, I didn't come from a working class background. So those aspects of Bruce's persona, I recognize and appreciate as an adult, and I certainly saw as I was in my, you know, later years, teens and my 20s, that evolved. But what I also think about more over the years is, because over the years I probably, I, you know, I always listened to his music, but what I really would get excited about was being able to see him in person. Because seeing him in person is a completely different experience because of the length of his shows and what he puts into his shows and seeing the whole band and that became that becomes just a transit, as he says, a transcendental experience. And that's one of the biggest things I got from his book, his challenges with mental health, and how the healthiest he play, feels is on stage, and that to get communally, meaning between him and the audience, he needs to play three or four hours to get to where he wants to go for his transcendental experience. And and it, that his the way he described it really like it was exa- if I had had the words and the language that's uh, that's how I would have ex- described it and so it's interesting to me since I you know I grew up with it and I've seen him live over the years many many times seeing it with you two summers ago was a really special experience for me but did you f- find it to be trans did you feel like you knew most of his songs and did you find find it a uh, uh, a, a we experience rather, uh, rather than a me experience. I remember it was very, very hot. Yeah. 
is a lot of what I remember. But I do think I was, because I'm weirdly, this is sort of embarrassing, but I'm not a big live music person. Mm. I'm not exactly sure why, because I feel like my generation like loves to go to concerts and, mm. and music festivals and stuff. And I'm just, I have a hard time with it keeping my attention. But I did find that he was, even if I didn't know the songs, I knew maybe like half the songs, really keeps your attention. It was exciting just to see so much energy and passion and like love play out on stage. And I think even if you don't know all the songs, that really comes through. And so that makes it just like an incredibly worthwhile experience. And uh, what's always clear, and I don't know how he does it night after night, at the end of the night, he's du- he's physically and emotionally given everything he has to give to the audience. And it's it's amazing to experience. It's that. like, yeah, it's like an Olympic athlete. They say like when you run a track meet, you should not be able to stand up afterwards. Right. Otherwise you haven't given it your yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it's a communal experience to be with him for three and a half. We saw four, we saw like four hours. We, yeah. We saw one of the longest shows he's, he's really? ever done. Yeah. And, uh, it was it was a little bit over four hours, and at the end of the night, the, the he's wiped, the band's wiped, the audience is wiped. Yeah, every it's it's a great experience, and uh, it was really fun for me to share that with you. Bruce is just way different, you know, than seeing other groups in person. When was the first time you saw him live? I saw him live at the Spectrum, my senior year of high school, and <laughs> then I saw him again in college. I went, I saw him at the Boston Garden. That was actually a great tour. Was the album called Dancing in the Dark? I think that might have been, it was 82 or 83. I actually had standing room only in the last row in the third tier at the Boston Garden. Whoa. And uh, unfortunately, I, you know, the, the sound was fine and went with a group of friends. I'll never forget. We were a group of boys and girls. The girl I was standing next to could see everything on the stage. And uh, and I could barely see, and I kept asking her what's, and I discovered that she had better than twenty twenty eyesight. I never knew anyone who had better than twenty twenty eyesight. That's very exciting. <laughs> Legolas, what do your elf eyes see? <laughs> exactly, it was crazy. She had such good eyesight. The other thing I would say is um, when I first started hearing about Bruce Springsteen, hearing him on the radio with Ed Shockey at WMR in Philadelphia. Is it was part of a Jersey band cover band Shore Sound, and there was Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes, and there was uh, Miami Steve Van Zant, who was both part of was a singer songwriter on his own, was part of Southside Johnny, and then he joined Bruce Springsteen, and so and they would all play. Not only would they were they cover band, but they would play each other's songs. So it was all a little weird. So Southside Johnny, when I first heard of them, they were playing Bruce Springsteen songs. And then Steve Van Zant was part of the E Street Band and backing Bruce Springsteen. So it was all this sort of, uh, it was all a little bit of a jumble, I think, in my mind. When And then Bruce became hugely successful and clearly had established his own identity. But when I originally first started hearing about him, it was a, a, like this Jersey band sound. And he was part of that. So it's like almost, oh my God, we can't do a fucking podcast without the dog. <laughs> Fine, come in, come in, sit down, stay a while. Um, so it's almost like a, I don't know, it's like an artistic collective. Yes, it was like an artistic collective. And it was based, and it was also confusing to me, I guess, because you had one 
uh, group's name was Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes. And, and Bruce Springsteen's first album is Greetings from Asbury Park. So there's like, it's not only a collective, but it's all centered around Asbury Park, New Jersey. And it was, uh, that sort of blended it all together. Did you have like friends that were in bands in no. high school? No. Really? No, no one? No one. That's not that fun. <laughs> it would be. Uh, I feel be. like, well, you remember us. We had all those friends in the School of Rock, fa- yes. of the famous school School of Rock. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have that, and I didn't know. There was kids, there was band. I knew kids were in band. Well, that's not fun. <laughs> but I didn't know anybody in a rock, and rock band. Uh, when I got to college, there were kids in rock bands, and they, I remember they had a girl front singer. Oh, that's very exciting. Yeah, that uh, my friends uh, had a crush on. But I didn't uh, know in high school, I didn't know anyone who was playing rock music. There probably were were kids. But not your crowd? But not my crowd. (laughs) None of the wrestlers. (laughs) (laughs) They weren't also picking up electric guitars. Did anything strike you differently, you think, this time around, rather than what you remember? There was one song that just stayed in my head which surprised me because it would have been one of the f- songs that I thought like, oh, this is one of my favorite songs of the album, which was the song For You. And it's just been in my head since uh, we uh, listened to the album. And I'm just really, uh, so I Googled it and I discovered the song was about suicide. Oh and God. I've heard the song literally 50 times and never really uh, focused on that, there, that he refers to her Chelsea suicide and uh, her surgeon and and that I guess she's surviving suicide and he's trying to help her but uh, I, I just really really like the song I both really like the music and I like that it sort of it seems to like drive to a conclusion and as opposed to a lot of the other songs which all have these flash images of different nicknamed people and things are happening and in and out he's focused on uh, just one person he's just singing about one person and his uh, I guess his desire and his love for this person is his desire to help them, and I guess his inability to help her. And uh, I just really like the song. I really like the lyric. It's not the way you're stretched out on the floor, because uh, I think it's a way of he's communicating. You know, my desire for you is more than just you know sexual. He clearly is really into his girl, and she's a mess. Do you feel like he? Because he's sort of publicly talked about his struggles with mental health. I'm wondering if that was like, did not, if that didn't really come out until later. Like he didn't really discuss oh, no, that yeah, early he, in his career. Absolutely. I, I I don't know other people who followed him more closely than I did when they became aware. I didn't become aware of it until he published his book, which is just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't think it was understood in the general public. I don't think he ever sang about being depressed, but it's interesting now that you bring that up because, you know, maybe he's projecting, right? creating this girl who's who's suicidal when he's maybe was struggling with the same issues yeah i would think you know mid-20s you're sort of if you have that issue you're dealing with it at that point yeah um it's a pretty long narrative about one relationship as opposed to blinded by the light or uh is this uh 82nd street bus stop there are just little glimpses of little um like vignettes vignettes and this is and and i even think the music um builds up which uh, is, I pray, maybe more. The other ones are really high. They start high energy and they end high energy. They're sort of the same pace along. This song builds, which I think um, is compelling. Yeah. 
I was wondering also, like, because you were saying how much you just adored the sort of high energy yeah. kind of rock songs. Right. And if this one was like a little different in terms of energy, since you're listening to so much Joni Mitchell. <laughs> uh, I think that I, I like the the long narrative and, and the many descriptions of the same person as opposed to just introducing all these street characters that come and go. Yeah. I think that uh, really s- stayed with me. And, and compared to a lot of his other songs, she, she almost seems like a fully realized person. She seems like a mess. <laughs> <laughs> but with, with death. That gives her a lot of uh, realness. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. She's not just like an archetype. Right. Sad. I gotta re-listen to it. All right. For you. This podcast is for you. This podcast is very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Percy. Yeah. And I'm sure you see that too. I came for you, for you. I came for you, but you did not need my urgency. I came for you. PWG, the worst garbage, the online.